0: Hi everybody, welcome to another special episode of Scientists vs. Zombies. This week's scientist is a warrior in women's health, a classically trained ballet dancer, and someone who is constantly inspiring me. It's Sharice Gladowski. Hi, Charisse. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm like three coffees in, so I'm approaching Ooh. like sweaty, but yes. I'm great. <laughs>
1: so, jittery. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm great. I am a giant mug of Earl Grey, and so I'm not sweaty, but definitely awake, which is a good state <laughs> to be in. So. That's perfect. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I'm in a good
0: a good place to be a good host right now. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. So the first question I ask all of my guests um, is just to describe your perfect Sunday. And um, for the listener, it is Sunday currently. So are you close to living your perfect Sunday today or... Uh
1: you know, I'm in between. It's a bit cold and rainy and dreary. So I'm not living the best Sunday, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I think the perfect Sunday for me would be to sleep in a little bit, mm. drink a giant cup of Lady Grey tea in bed, and then make a huge stack of banana pancakes. And I do them in coconut oil. So they're fluffy mm. on the outside and the edges are crispy. And then go on a hike with the dog and friends. And then, I don't know, putter around the garden barefoot and cook a giant, wholesome dinner and take a hot bath with homemade candles and bath oils and then pass out at 9 p.m. Wow. I'm sold. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that would be my perfect, my perfect day. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good, it's a good dream.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds, it sounds attainable. It's just about like blocking it off for yourself, which is mm-hmm. the impossible
1: part, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, making time to have time.
0: Oh, seriously. Yeah. I've been thinking, like, I think life is all about wasting the right amount of time. I think mm-hmm. that's the key.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's good. I think you should, you should write that down in a, like somewhere and have it on a plaque with a little yeah. curly calligraphy. It should also be rebranded from like, it's not wasting time. You know what I mean? No. It's, it's free time. It's play time. It's living, it's playtime. It's existing. It's being yourself. It's important. Yes okay well let's
0: let's jump in um so you mentioned to me that you were having problems well I want to ask about your scientific identity and your personal (laughs) identity and you said that you're having problems differentiating so maybe I'm just gonna let you like tell your story how it (laughs) makes sense to you and like throw everything in like the personal parts the scientific parts everything just give it to us ramble away
1: Okay. well, I think you bring up a really good point that the two are really intertwined for me, but I can I can try to separate them out maybe in two pieces just for clarity and then bring them all back together. Um, And I guess it's best to start with kind of who I am now and then work backwards a little bit. Um, and just kind of see where that genesis yeah. was. But um, who I am now is that I'm currently completing my PhD studying pathobiology and translational science in Chuck Peru's lab at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, where you also go, Emma. So we got yeah, through Yeah, I was going to say, that, that sounds program. really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how <laughs> nifty. Um, we're, so we're in the same program. So that's how Emma and I met for the listeners. Yes. And we had a lot of things in common, law of common interests, which I'm sure are going to come up. Yes. And I think the biggest one that we both have in common, which is my whole driving force, is that I am extremely interested in improving women's health care through precision medicine. So that's my big life force driving interest. And this really started when I was 16 and I was training as a ballet dancer and I got diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. And I was so surprised at how few treatment options existed and found there were these gaps in our understanding of women's health issues. And this really inspired me wanting to fix health disparities for women, even when I was very young. And um so I, I really set out to build a foundation for this. I, I majored in nutrition at UC Davis and then I pursued a master's degree and studied genetics and developmental biology at the University of Cambridge in the UK, which was a wonderful time. And then I worked as a full-time embryologist in a fertility clinic for a year and a half. And then I decided to pursue my PhD because I wanted to study precision medicine and how we can apply that to other areas of women's health. And the best place to study precision medicine is in breast cancer, because breast cancer, there's a lot of work being done on how we can kind of subdivide the different disease states and really work to treat the individual and not just the disease as an average. And that really gives me hope to be able to apply this to women's health in the future. Can I jump in? Yes, just so quick.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like precision medicine is a really hot term right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just wondering, like, if you
1: can speak about how you understand it, like what that term means to you. Yeah, Absolutely. So precision medicine, in my understanding of it, and the way it's kind of a buzzword right now, is the idea that everybody as an individual and having a different disease, um, different treatments are going to affect them differently, or they're going to need different types of care. Um, I think that a really good example of this is breast cancer. So breast cancer isn't one big disease, it's a bunch of different diseases. Mm -hmm. And so different tumors can have different mutations or different genetic alterations. And all of those require different types of treatment. So you can't have a one pill fixes everything for everyone. And so a lot of precision medicine is trying to find ways that we can get effective tests for people to find different biomarkers or or ways to look at the individual disease and get the exact right treatment for that person. Um, So I really believe in this. I believe in this more individualized approach to medicine. And I think some of the big barriers that we have to overcome with that is accessibility and cost. But I don't mean when I say precision medicine, I don't mean, you know, the fancy, you know, only for the wealthy, they go in and get a very specific type of healthcare. What I really mean is from the research side, how we kind of divide up and study diseases um, and try to really get the right drug or the right treatment for the individual.
0: Yeah, something that was just coming up when you're talking was like, there's so many other settings that we really need more precision medicine. Like, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about like clinical depression. Yes,
1: absolutely. And I guess
0: my question for you, as far as you can tell, like, do you think the progress being made on precision medicine in the breast cancer world will that inform like a totally different clinical setting or will like you know, neurology have not neurology, but um, neuroscience have to start from the ground up if they want to start looking at precision medicine in depression, for example. Or yeah. like, is there going to be crosstalk between fields, um, me- methodology wise? Do you think? Yeah, great
1: question. I think that there could be a lot of crosstalk. I don't think that neurology, for example, would have to start from the ground up. I think that we can. Deploy what we study in oncology to other fields, the sort of um, methods like, okay, let's look at all the genes that are available. Mm -hmm. How do these change? Okay, let's look at the metabolism for all of these. How does this change for this disease? Um, How do we, okay, use this to test patients in the clinic and then bring that back to lab? I think that's all applicable across the board for really any disease. I think um, it's interesting you bring up depression because that's obviously something that varies a lot. There's a lot of different Mm -hmm. environmental factors. There's a lot of genetic factors that go into that. You have nutrition. It's just so multifaceted all the Mm -hmm. way through. Um, And that makes it both thrilling and very challenging to study in any field. Um, But I think the model for that is is that we should go in that direction. We should try to help. I mean, just if you were listeners or anybody can think of a time where you had any sort of health issue or mental health issue and you went to go get help for it, and you're sort of Mm -hmm. given a spiel about this is the average and this is, you know, what was generally prescribed, let's just try it out for you and see if it works. I would hope that we would move towards a place where we have more information. So people spend less time having to self experiment and try to muddle through and figure out what works for them and a little bit more care and attention to having the research in the background to make sure people can get more exactly what they need to start and and yeah. don't have that, that, that wading through information and yeah. discomfort for so long.
0: And it also seems like it could be really revolutionary for just the like social aspects of going to the doctor, because I think a lot of people, especially with, you know, birth control comes to mind of people yes. just going through a bunch of different formulations to find what works for them. I think it kind of creates like trust issues with the system mm-hmm. because it's easy to feel like the doctor is just like, well, we'll start here and try this and let me know. Yeah. And I think there's a public perception that, you know, doctors should be a little bit more targeted or precise mm-hmm. um, to use, to use that word mm-hmm. um when prescribing. And so, yeah, it's cool that we're moving towards
1: that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think contraception's A good example of that and the genesis of where I got interested in this because, you know, I was I was 16 and they were trying to figure out how to help me with PCOS and it was the recommendation was, okay, we'll take birth control. (laughs) And I think birth control is wonderful that it exists. And I think that it gives us a lot of autonomy. I was really surprised again at how little information there was. Like if you're mm-hmm. 16, which birth control should you be on? What's best for you? What's best if you have endometriosis or polycystic ovaries or hormonal dysregulation. And there is so much um, here, try it out, see if it works. And I remember being 16 and thinking, we, we've got to do better than this. Like we've got to maybe find a rubric or just understand people's metabolism or find a way to get the right drug, to the person quickly. And then, and also understand what does that do to a developing bodies? Are there health implications later? How do we make this better so that women aren't carrying the brunt of, you know, a healthcare system that hasn't really researched women as much as men. Yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, you, you hit on, yeah, an area very, it's very near and dear to my heart
0: there. Yeah. So segue back into your story. Keep going.
1: Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess so. <laughs> so on the question of, you know, sort of what is my identity as a scientist? It is a lot of that sort of wrapped up in women's health. Um, but when people ask what I do, I say that I'm I'm a breast cancer researcher and a, a woman's health advocate. And I very much think of myself as a translational science and the, that I work in a lab to study diseases that we see in the clinic with the goal of discovering ways to improve the health of individuals in the community. So that's the definition, working definition of translational science, which is the name of the program that Emma and I are both in. Yes. Um, and we, we call this model the sort of bench to bedside Model where Mm -hmm. you take things that you see in lab and clinic and there's crosstalk between the two. And I love that. I think that's such an important area of study. And so I'm really proud of this identity of being a translational scientist and a breast cancer researcher. And for breast cancer specifically, I'm, I'm really proud of that because I get to study a disease that impacts you know, one in eight women in the U.S. and affects the lives of millions of people. And um, for cancer specifically, it's like this many-headed beast. It's like a, a hydra from Greek mythology, right? You cut off one <laughs> head and another grows back or three more grow back. And so to tackle it, it takes this very team science-based approach where there's you know, a worldwide network of cancer researchers all trying to work on different aspects of this. So different ways to take out the beast, so, so to speak. And um, and I think thirdly, I'm really proud of being a translational scientist and the sort of identity of a scientist because it's challenging. It's challenging mentally and technically. You know, the work you have to do with your hands and the machinery you have to use. Um, I think it's emotionally very taxing. It's physically difficult. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard, all of it. And I think it feels really good shaping who I am through something that's this rigorous and this challenging. And I think that hopefully it will shape me into the person that can leave the world a little better than I found it. I'm so touched (laughs) by that, honestly. That's, that's,
0: that's what I got. Sorry, I'm
1: like laughing, but it was such a, a good remark. No, I, um, it's, it's just getting to the the heart of it. I was thinking about that question earlier and I just I really mean it. So Yeah, I think I definitely resonate
0: with just there's so many challenging aspects, like physically, intellectually, emotionally, socially. Um mm-hmm. it does feel like being a scientist does turn you into a really complex person just with the different activities you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, Definitely. But it's hard to, I mean, I want to leave the bench
1: because it's hard to support all of those aspects of yourself all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And being, and we, we talk about that uh, being at the bench, that's where you're you know, pipetting things, you're, you're moving cells around, you're moving clear liquid into <laughs> other clear liquid. Really and, exhilarating. Yeah. yeah. And it can be, it can be really thrilling and very satisfying. I think there's a lot of people have different perspectives on you know, which aspect of science they like. Some people mm-hmm. love that part of it and want to do that forever. And some people are just like, please get me out of here. I want to do <laughs> analysis or communication. Yeah, or, I just want to sit a,
0: at a desk. Yeah, I just want to
1: <laughs> sit at a desk. Please let me <laughs> get like one of those cool walking desks i yeah the treadmill desk the treadmill desk that <laughs> is the dream and so yeah i think there's a lot of different you know ways to be a scientist in yeah. that in that regard um but i think they're all challenging yeah, yeah. all important yeah. and i and i agree with you that they really structure who we are so So that being said, tell me who are
0: you outside of the lab, outside of science? What do you do for fun? Yeah. What other things,
1: you know, inform your personal identity? Yeah, definitely. So I'm definitely not purely a scientist. I actually never really identified as being one until quite recently mm-hmm. um, because I was always a dancer. I was always um, in a more artistic space. So I come from a very artistic and creative family. My parents were both ballet dancers. Um, my dad ended up practicing medicine. So he had both the, the science and the art. My mom I was this. I never knew that you're parents were ballet dancers. Yes. Yes. That's that is how they met. So cool. Mm-hmm. So they were both <laughs> professional ballet dancers. They're, they're amazing. Um, and they, they met through my grandfather on my mom's side who ran Pittsburgh ballet theater and kind of, um, wow. and yeah. So they, they, are, he helped bring in all the different people there. So a lot of big history there, but I basically grew up in the theater and kind of in my parents bred mini ballet dancers. There were the three of us. We, <laughs> we grew up, um, training in ballet and, uh, and and a little bit of everything right we grew up you know, reading and and you know painting and ballet and it was very disciplined in a good way right that classical ballet requires a lot of um, commitment and discipline and um and the ballet world is is wonderful and terrible I I really <laughs> it has a lot in there but I think overall what it taught me was um, you know, very deep appreciation of of music and movement and performance and life and how to tackle things that are hard. And so I think it fed in very seamlessly into being a scientist eventually. Mm-hmm. A lot of the girls that I um, girls and boys that I trained with actually now are scientists in different wow. areas, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. I think ballet and art and using your brain in that way lends itself to science really, Beautifully. For sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, I danced from the time I was six to 23. So for the longest time, my identity was a dancer and an artist. And um, kind of, I also, uh, in the meantime, have started working as a dramaturge, which is um, editing and working on different theatrical pieces. So I work with my sister. She writes. Uh, music for kind of pre-Broadway musical theater and professionally, she's incredible at it. And so we collaborate on a lot of things like that. So that's kind of my outside personality. So I guess it to some, my identity outside of being a scientist, it's, um, I feel like I still have the heart of a performer and an artist, but mm. I'm also a traveler, a exploratory cook, a theater enthusiast, um, a big sister, a girlfriend, a dog mom, a Krav Maga martial artist, which I love. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm a small woodland fairy creature who likes being barefoot in a creek. So I'm, I'm all of these things. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Oh, you're so awesome.
0: <laughs> I just want <laughs> to say that on air so everybody oh, knows. Thanks. <laughs> I just you're awesome too. I just I just like yeah. (laughs) We just have a lot of mutual admiration for each other. Yes, and I'm yeah. Speaking, I just wanted to touch on the Krav Maga thing for (laughs) one second. Yes, to say that yeah, you got me into kickboxing, and Mm -hmm. it's now like it's. A weekly installment in my life because Excellent. I need it. I just remember the first time I went, my feeling leaving was wow, I'm not a fighter. That was like <laughs> so different than a yoga class. And now yeah. when I go, I'm like, I am ready to hit things. <laughs> like-
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, it feels great. It's such a and I just I don't know, stress relief, a way to go think about something that's not science to move your body. And then also just learning how to defend yourself in situations is so empowering. Um, being able to walk around and, and no, I'm, you know, a five foot two female. Like I am de- like at a disadvantage because I, I, could be walking bait because I'm smaller, but, um, I like being able to, I travel alone a lot. I like to do things by myself a lot. I like mm-hmm. having in my back pocket, all of these tools to defend myself. And it makes me less afraid, not more afraid. So I feel like I have way less anxiety having trained mm-hmm. in Krav Maga than I do, than I did beforehand. So I 10 out of ten recommend to anybody who feels anxious or stressed or ever like they're very small and not able to be Uh, like safe in their environments, I really would recommend it.
0: Yeah. And I think I had definitely like a misconception going in. I was like, everyone who does kickboxing are people that struggle with anger and (laughs) need to to hit things so that they don't accidentally punch a hole in the wall. That was
1: no but then yeah I'm like (laughs) it is
0: so much about inner peace and yeah feeling like you have autonomy that you you know can stand up for yourself if you need to um that you can just like express yourself in you know a physical way that you know you don't get to on on a day-to-day basis I think as someone who like doesn't let myself access anger. It's actually like tapped into an emotion in a healthy way that I don't necessarily let myself feel all the time. So
1: yeah. What a great access point. I'm so glad that it did that for you.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's awesome. So I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back. I want to ask you. So yeah, I totally agree that having, Well, a lot of scientists, most scientists probably have artistic instincts. I think Mm -hmm. it's very common. I'm a musician more than a dancer. Yes. Um, But I was wondering like where you find pieces of art in science. Like,
1: yeah. Yeah. What a great question. So I think the main connection between the two is storytelling. Mm -hmm. So in art, or ballet, or painting, or musical theater, or poetry, all of these are branches of storytelling. And science I love and am drawn to is because it's storytelling in itself. You're piecing together all these little plot points to create this cohesive story. And just like with storytelling, right, if you think about either you're telling a story to someone or you're gossiping or you're (laughs) you're telling a a piece of information to someone, how you tell that story is going to kind of skew Mm -hmm. someone's perception of it. Um, and so, I think there's a lot of responsibility in science as story, as a type of storyteller, as a scientist, yeah. is being really honest in in how we look at the data and how we tell what it's doing not just to ourselves and the wider scientific community, but to the public, they found kind of that mm-hmm. sort of cross communication there. Um, I think that like with anything, if you have um, any dishonesty or sort of a lack of trust there, that um, opening those communication lines is so important and having really honest storytellers is really important. If you imagine you look at a movie and the characters aren't very well developed and the plot is terrible and you just don't trust it and you just don't walk away feeling great about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think scientists feel the same way when they read a bad paper or a bad article that explains what we do poorly. And so I, I am really drawn to storytelling in science and finding those ways to connect what we're finding um, to bring you know joy in people's lives to help them um it's all kind think, of tied together
0: do you think there's more room for emotion in scientific storytelling or do you think like where we've you know calibrated to as scientist like I'm talking more in like you know, primary scientific, Mm -hmm. um, communications. Um, it seems like, I don't know, we all study, not all, but especially in translational science and in pathology, we're studying diseases. We care about the patients that were, you know, doing research to help, Mm -hmm. but at the point where we're like writing papers and stuff, it's, I don't know, like, I just, I'm just wondering your perspective on this. Like, how do you see emotion come through in scientific storytelling? And do you think it should be like different
1: if you could control the world? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I think that so much science storytelling is so dry and (laughs) um, lacking in emotion. And I believe that's done on, on purpose so that we can get the information. Okay. Here's the information. Here's where it is. I'm the writer. Isn't putting their emotion on it. So they're not biasing the reader. Now there's value in that there's value in being able to read something for what it is, um, without it having bias in it. So I think mm-hmm. that that's something tricky there that you don't want to infuse your science with so much either enthusiasm or negativity that you impact how it's read on the other end. Um, but that being said, I think that we could do such a better job as scientists and how we talk about our work. I don't think it should just be this cut and dry. Here are the data points. I am a robot or in the case of this podcast, a zombie. Like it just, yeah. Yeah, I think you, you've hit on something really important, which is that, you know, we're doing this work and connecting this and building these stories and um, in story building and the storytelling within our community or within science. I just think it could be done in a way that's both objective, but also has some heart and soul in it. And that doesn't really give a concrete uh, solution to how we could fix that. I don't know how to fix that, but I I do wish and hope that it shifts in that direction.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate that. I totally agree. Okay. Mm -hmm. I want, okay. I want to go back to what you said. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You said that that you, only started identifying yourself as a scientist recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question that I wrote down is like, tell me the first time you felt like a scientist. Did mm-hmm. you feel like a scientist ever before you started like really claiming that identity? Or was, was there a moment where you're like, yes, this is what a, what being a scientist is and
1: I am that. What was your journey yeah. like? That's a great question. I'm trying to think where to start. I Because I think I always thought of myself more as a Renaissance person. I really, I <laughs> loved that idea of being like a Renaissance woman, like a female Leonardo da Vinci. That you was totally when I was totally give that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. But like when I was a kid, like I was so enthralled by people that had everything all combined. So I really um was passionate about the arts and humanities and the scientists and how they sciences and how they were intertwined together. Um and so uh, i don't think i really felt like a proper scientist for a long time partly um because yeah i think this is actually a good place to to bring this up because i had a very non traditional education so i was homeschooled on and off and in a partly because I was a ballet dancer and the schedule was so rigorous and my mom was a wonderful teacher yeah, and she really yeah. crafted this beautiful education for us. And then I went to a Waldorf high school where we learned blacksmithing and permaculture and eurythmy and life drawing. And so very artistic and very heavily involved in that way. Um, but very at the particular school I was at very poor at uh, teaching basic things like algebra. So mm. I I got to college <laughs> at UC Davis and um, essentially failed the math placement test. Mm. And I really wanted to do something biomedical. I, I wasn't sure if it was pre-med or science, but I, I wanted to help people. I wanted to fix women's health. And I was really... All- bent on doing this. And so when I failed this math placement test, I was told by a counselor that I should reconsider a degree in science. I should maybe go after something, you know, like humanities or communications, mm-hmm. which I found very insulting because one, those are exceptionally important areas of study. And the way yeah. that she was recommending it was because I had failed at something else, which I thought was not a good approach. Yeah. Um, and so what I did about this is I, I took remedial math and I did the science degree anyway. And I like figured it out and pushed through and kind of struggled through that. Um, And then I also minored in classics because I thought the humanities were important. So I studied Latin and Roman history, and then I was commuting to train as a ballet dancer an hour away. So I had all three areas that were kind of tied together. Um, And then, you know, from there I ended up pursuing the science track because I felt this was the most efficient way I could help with women's health and so to get back to your original question, which is when I first <laughs> felt like a scientist after being all of these different things for so many years, um, I was I was at Cambridge and I was working with mouse embryonic stem cells. I was doing a developmental biology genetics degree and I was in this gorgeous lab building. It was right next to where Watson and Crick discovered DNA, wow. and which was wild. And I just was like, <laughs> I just floored on a daily basis and so proud to, to be there and just so honored that I'd gotten a spot um, when I was this just like oddball dancer kid that That was just trying to change the world somehow. Um, but I was it was nighttime, and I was working with cell culture. So cell culture is you know, taking cells and working with them kind of under a microscope. And I came in to check on them to change the media, and no one else was there in lab that night. And I looked under the dish and the microscope. And these embryonic mouse stem cells had formed a little sphere, like a tiny clump, and they had turned into cardiomyocytes. So they were little heart cells. And so they were mm. beating in the dish. And it oh, was wow. just this insane moment. I mean, I think I almost screamed and jumped away from the microscope. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. It, was, it wasn't It was a eureka moment, but it was a, oh, my gosh, I – there's something happening here like what's happening why is it doing that and that's when I felt like a scientist for the first time having this bizarre experience um it scared scared me half to death but I remember that (laughs) clearly
0: I think I mean that's a really good point like even as scientists, we don't always get to see science, like, happening before our eyes. Right. And it's, like, a really, it is a really special thing to be, like, I am observing
1: a phenomenon right yes, now. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, how did, how did these become hearts? Why are these beating? They don't have, there's no brain, there's no, there's just tiny cells in a dish, and they differentiated and grew to develop the genes that made them develop proteins that allowed them to um, beat and have a little yeah. like lub-dub motion sort of in the <laughs> in the dish. So it was wild. The world's yeah. wild. It's amazing what's out there. So yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I'm here. Let me check where we're at because I feel like we are just chatting 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 Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) it's a good topic
1: there's much to talk about
0: yeah so other outside of the um cells beating in the dish are there Mm -hmm. other moments that like just stand out to you as being like wow science is awesome and this is for me yeah
1: yeah, there is. So very recently during my PhD, um, and I've had a wonderful PhD. I know that there's a lot of discourse around PhDs being a sort of miserable experience, and I think traditionally they have been right. You're very, yeah. you know, you're you're very underpaid a lot of the time, and the work is very hard, and there's a lot of heavy expectations. And you're meant to be all of these things, you're meant to be a writer and a bench scientist and a Mm -hmm. grant writer and a presenter and a mentor. Like there's just a lot that goes into it. And, um, but I've been overall extremely lucky. I have very supportive PI and a very cool project I work on. Um, So looking at resistant, tumor cells in breast cancer. And so it kind of ties in that you know women's health and stem cell biology and drug resistance, everything kind of all into one. And so I think the big moment where this all came together was maybe about a year ago. And i have been working on my PhD for five years or almost five years at that point. And it was such a Frankenstein moment. I was up in lab. It was midnight. I and I wasn't there under duress. I was there because I'd gotten data back. I was yeah. so excited to see what it was. I was sitting at the computer. Yeah, and there's Major North, difference. Right, right. And there's and there's a, there's a big lightning storm because it's North Carolina. And there's, you know, I'm looking out over the hospital from the window and lab and there's just lightning everywhere. And I'm working away and, and clicked the button to see the graph with everything all coming together. And this, you know, elusive stem cell population I've been looking for forever was there and we found it. And it was just this eureka moment. It's the stuff that you just... I guess, dream about, or you didn't, I, uh, I, it was such a good moment. And I think I was, very emotional in that moment because it felt like all of the hard work was really paying off. Um, and I was so excited to tell my mentor and I was so excited that the work I'd been doing wasn't for not, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. that that really comes to mind, that that mad scientist at midnight moment. But it was <laughs> yeah. it was really special. It was a good, it was a good moment. So yeah, I can't not help just... but notice,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. your, both your stories took place at night.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. And I'm not a night person. I don't know what those are so yeah (laughs) yeah great (laughs) question
0: though yeah okay um i feel like you are uh i don't know i see you as a very like pure i mean we talked a lot about how your identity is very complex and i think part of what makes you such a cool and good scientist is there's so many mix-ins to your whole repertoire of being a person.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We're that are. people. Yes.
0: Yeah, but I also like you are such a like admirable like scientist to me because I do feel like you are just genuinely excited about your work and See and think about the people it impacts, and just like what effect you want to have on the world. And I just really admire that. But the question I'm building up to. (laughs) You're so sweet. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what what science are you like in on right now, or like have read about, or just are paying attention to that you think more people should know about because it's exciting or novel or like what I'm yes. reading in science right now.
1: Yes. So what I'm reading right now, that's not specifically in breast cancer, but in my kind of biggest interest, which is the women's health field. What I'm really interested in right now are health disparities in, in women's um, research or women's health research. And so this mm-hmm. is, again, something, Emma, that you and I connect on a lot. And um, what this is kind of coming from is, a few years ago, Alina Hamilton and I, she's in the same program. Yeah. And then I are in, she, hi Alina, she's, <laughs> she's amazing. And she and I had this idea to create this women's health multidisciplinary consortium. And so we decided what, there was so, so much good women's health research at UNC, right? So reading papers mm-hmm. and seeing things coming out, people are studying, you know, heart disease and women's health or people studying new forms of contraception. Um, and this was all happening at the university that we're at, but these people weren't talking to each other. And so we decided to build this consortium where we bring people together. And I roped Emma into this. I said, Emma, you're interested in women's health. Come here. And and you so graciously said, yeah, okay, I'm in. Like, what do you want me to do? And so like, let's form a planning committee. Let's build this. And so we started building the seminar series. Emma's helped me lead these seminars as well, where we craft these um, talks that are based on a hot topic in women's health. And so that's what's exciting. That's what's new and exciting for me are these hot topics in women's health. And we usually bring in speakers that are experts in the field. I think you know, one really good example of this is we did a talk called um, Contraception Beyond the Pill. And so we had a trainee, we had a, you know, a clinician and we had someone who worked in industry. And so Emma actually gave a talk yeah. on an, a beautiful overview. It was so good on contraception and sort of, you know, the cardiovascular effects of that. We had someone who came in and she was talking about her research with antisperm antibodies, which was very cool. And we had a pediatrician who came in talking about reproductive justice for adolescents and sort of the role and intersection of contraception there. And so for me, what is so, thrilling and exciting are these hot topics and I just hope that they continue and I want to stay involved in that forever. I just, I think it, there's so much that we can learn. And um, if I want other people to be excited about it, because I think we have so much to learn about women's health and um, it's just understudied compared to a lot of issues with men. So, um, and men are equally important. Like everything is, you know, like, like everybody is important <laughs> we men. here. Yeah. We love men. It's all like, everybody is important. <laughs> I want everyone to have, you know, equity in how their yeah. diseases are studied in treated in the clinic
0: yeah but yeah going back to like one of the original points you're we talking about is just the lack of trust in the clinic with you know doctors not knowing as much as patients and probably the doctors too wish they did yeah. and how to treat patients and I think women and underrepresented minorities especially yes um are more prone to those types of experiences than men white men mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so yeah definitely very important Yes. Yeah, I was—I <laughs> was gonna say it's so funny because I feel like I coincidentally ended up getting involved in all this women's health thing, um, <laughs> things. Cause I'm primarily like I'm interested in blood clotting and that's how I ended up at UNC and the project I happened to inherit when I got here was about birth control and so I kind of ended up in the world of contraception that way and I've always been like I always get more passionate about things the deeper I get into the knowledge base of that thing like I could pick up anything and be like, okay, I'll start reading about this. But the more I start feeling like maybe I could be the expert on this or like, I'm really getting a grasp on, you know, the, this area. That's when I'm really like excited. And so through my research, I was like contraception. So, I mean, obviously as a woman, I'm like contraception is very important. I had that belief before I started researching (laughs) researching it, it, but, um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm really happy that just like my research, um, led me to being so involved with the women's health thing. And I honestly, I wish I could plan those Hot Topic seminars like full time. I would absolutely oh, yeah. do that as a career. Oh, um. same.
1: hundred <laughs> percent. They're just so cool. And they are open, you know, for, I don't know who's listening, but if um, mom, you're yeah. interested. <laughs> Hi, mom. Um, They're they <laughs> open to the public for listening in on those Hot Topic seminars. So, um, yeah, we're really excited that we can provide that for people. Yeah. Perfect. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So I want to know mm-hmm. in your free time, yes. um, outside of science, what type of media do you like to consume? Um, Could be anything. It probably is a lot of things. And mm-hmm. do you have any recommendations <laughs> for yes. mostly mostly me, but yes. um, also,
1: <laughs> the, also the listener? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, it really made me very happy that you think of me as a scientist, which is so funny because it took me so long to feel that way about myself. And just for the record, I don't really pursue science-based media outside of the lab. I don't, it's funny, people send me articles on something related to what I do and I go, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. But when I'm not in the lab, gosh, there's just so much other stuff to, to look at and study. Um, And so I think my favorite podcasts at the moment, um, one of them is what uh, you recommended, you and Molly, the previous yeah. guest recommended to me was Normal <laughs> Gossip, which is yes. a brilliant podcast. It makes me laugh so hard. It makes my boyfriend laugh so hard. He's, he's great for a good gossip. And if, it's, it's- If one more guest mentions uh, Normal Gossip, normal I'm going have to reach out to Kelsey McKinney. I know, like... <laughs> Kelsey McKinney and say, oh gosh. It's so good though. It's It's a wonderful podcast. Um, I also love, it's over now, but I listen to it endlessly is uh, um, a podcast. Well, actually, I'm not going to say the name of it on here, but it starts with my dad wrote A and then blank. But it is, yes, uh, (laughs) it is a great podcast. It is not G-rated, but it is a wonderful podcast. It's funny and it's clever and it's British and um, it's great. Uh, You could reach out if you want the full name of that. And the... (laughs) Other things that I I really enjoy reading, I love, you know, fiction and a little bit of sci-fi, but just books you can get lost in. I'm reading a book called The Shoemaker's Wife right now, which is just an early romp through 1900s, pre-World War I, Italian Alps and the big boom of industry in Mm -hmm. New York City. And it's just such a beautiful escape. Um, I'm reading a book called Little Weirds by Jenny Slate, who is, uh, she's great and she's a comedian and writer and actress and general polymath. And she's wonderful. It's this delightful little book. Um, and then the other media I'm listening to um, is my sister's music. Both of my sisters went the more arts route and they're brilliant. And so my middle sister and her writing partner, Richie Walters have written a new musical called Clicquot, a revolutionary musical, which is about the woman who um, not invented champagne, but really made it the celebratory drink that it is today. So uh, Barbara, uh, Barb, Nicole, is uh, the protagonist in this, and she was one of the women in business when women did not run businesses in sort of 1700s mm-hmm. in France. And so, beautiful musical, beautiful music. The EP for that album is dropping on Spotify April 15th. So, a we'll little plug for my sister because I'm so proud of her. Thank you. Yes. yes. And uh, my other sister is a songwriter and an ASL interpreter. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been enjoying the music that she's creating and starting to produce. Um, I'm generally just such uh, their number one fan. I'm so proud of my sisters and the beautiful work that they bring into the world. And, um, and I guess just to tie all that together with, with what I do is I had students once I was um, teaching class and kind of mentoring students on how to get into graduate school. And they were all scientists and they were asking me, hi oh, what do I need to get into this school? Like what classes? Like how do I need to go into graduate school? How do I become a scientist? And I said, you know, you really, you need to take all these classes, but you also need to do something artistic you need to go to the theater you need to enjoy music you need to be a musician or or something in some way and not because it looks good on your cv that doesn't matter you should never do anything for a cv um you should only pursue things that you know bring boundless joy Mm -hmm. i guess marie kondo ish but in a like science way <laughs> but i said it was like look like all of these things the arts and humanities and the music and the the books like, these are all so important they're equally important to science science is not more important than any of these other aspects of life and so you need to pursue those things because otherwise what are you trying to save if you're doing science like if we're trying oh. to make the world better and help people and save people why what are we fighting to save if there isn't the stuff that makes us human so I just believe that in my heart of hearts.
0: <laughs> Man, that is that's a huge mic drop. I am, I am blown away by that. That's that's a yeah. gorgeous sentiment. I've never really thought of it that way.
1: Mm-hmm. I believe oh. that. I've believed that for a long time. And I I just I think it's all equally important. And I think the mistake is thinking that you know, the STEM fields are somehow more important mm-hmm. or more worthy than
0: yeah, I so, mean, the thing I was thinking when you are talking was, like, human society and, like, humans in general haven't evolved necessarily because we understand biology more. Like, no, we evolved yeah. because we've, like, knitted together communities through arts and through storytelling and through all yes. of these... Emotional, expressive experiences. And yeah, I mean, that's the that's the fabric of humanity, not understanding like how I mean, it's great. And I love that humans, you know, want to understand how the world works, like other animals don't have that you know at least they don't have the resources to do right it. right they don't have the thumbs have the or thumbs, the yeah. Or, yeah or the
1: pocketbooks yes
0: yeah yeah um, but it's like i don't see my cat you know testing hypotheses around the house no no <laughs> <laughs> no
1: well maybe cats
0: if any animal but yes otherwise we have to test gravity but other than that right, right. You know, but it's like if they really you know they would have figured it out by now or they're... you know you can assume that they have probably and they just like yeah. messing with us but yeah. um little you know, science is on the cat side but <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> no exactly and i i agree with that and um yeah, I agree that the that's what I was talking about storytelling earlier. It all weaves together. Um, there's not one thing that's more important than the other. And um yeah fabric of humanity and all that it all it all matters so you know shout out to all the artists out there anyone yes. who's ever looked down their nose at an artist in some way because ah yes well I study I don't know, fill in some stem field here I just that just irritates me beyond measure it's well they're like, all, it's, yeah people
0: pay out of their own pockets for entertainment mm-hmm. and I mean artists should be compensated more and fairly yes but, yeah like that's what people are going out and buying in the world no one's out there buying science no no yeah (laughs) we are we are paying our taxes because we have to and that money is you know like there's the personal investment of culture is not yes I mean it it should be more in science like that's a that's a whole different topic of conversation Oh, fully. but um yeah 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 it's it's a really really great point okay Mm -hmm. I have one more question for you it's not a trick question okay um (laughs) what do you want to do when you grow up (laughs) That is such a
1: trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So this, this, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to be all things I am now. Uh, Plus I want to be a physician scientist. So I want to uh, work with patients and be in a big research hospital and kind of continue the translational science, clinical story. and, you know, the rest of my time I'll work on clinical trials and either be a director of a women's health research center or something, something in that vein um, and somewhere where I'm able to be a mentor and work with students and train the next generation and just really foster big collaborative environments um, that that interweave all these things that I'm passionate about. Right. That that bring in the creativity and the artistry into science and bring in the people that are um just so passionate about what they do. That's what I'd like to do when I grow up. Um, And, and, and I would, and that's just professionally. I think Mm -hmm. I also, as a grown up, I'm really excited to be a mom in whatever capacity that looks like. I'm really excited to, um, yeah, to have a family and like have a beautiful place where I can, you know, live and call home and have friends over and have a beautiful garden and be able to be, the traveler and just ah, just live, right? I just really, really <laughs> live and leave the world a little better than I found it. So all those things tied together, not just um not just being a scientist, but being a fully fledged, happy human. <laughs>
0: One of my, sorry, this is just bringing up one of my earliest memories of us being friends (laughs) was at the um, department Christmas party. I think my, well, my first year in the department, so probably my second year of grad school, but we were having (laughs) like the most animated conversation about being Girl Scouts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like leaving, like leaving places better than you found them, which is, you know, one of the tenets of Girl Scout philosophy. It is. Um, But Mm -hmm. yeah, you. Yes, I I love that. Yes, Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, we are running out of time and I'm going to I. Love chatting with you. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think it's obvious to everyone who's <laughs> here or listening that I absolutely adore you. Um so <laughs> likewise it is mutual and goes two oh. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, um yeah, I will obviously talk to you soon because yes. I love you.
1: <laughs> Same. Love will be right back. And okay. thank you for doing this. I think it's so important that the whole premise of this, right? Like, there are people behind all the data and the numbers, and yeah, we're yeah. alive and vibrant and have, you know, relationships. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah
0: my goal is either you know for scientists to listen to this and say like oh i'm not weird for being like an emotional creative artistic complex creature and not just right. like being driven by the facts and right. um or also like someone who maybe doesn't think that they could fill the shoes of a scientist like just learning that you know we're just we're just normal people who are curious and a little bit yes. crazy
1: um <laughs> 100% and it's all good 100%. yeah
0: yeah absolutely yay thank you for having me it's such an honor so thank you so much for being here it was truly my pleasure
1: absolutely (laughs) all right I'll see you soon
0: yes bye (laughs)
1: bye